0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu.
1: Hello and welcome to The Hindu's InFocus podcast. On Monday, China said that its industrial output expanded 3.8% in July compared with the year earlier, but a tad slower than June's 3.9% growth. Retail sales too rose a slower 2.7% compared with 3.1% seen in June. Media reports, quote, analysts as saying that loan demand in the economy has remained weak. The country's central bank cut rates with an aim to spur growth. Like the rest of the world, India's northern neighbor faces challenges in terms of quickening inflation, growth challenges, and the threat of flight of capital. To help us understand China's current imperatives, we have with us today Santosh Pai, Honorary Fellow, Institute of Chinese Studies in New Delhi, and partner Link Legal, a full-service law firm. Uh, Mr. Pai, thank you so much for joining us today. really appreciate your setting up our
0: time for us. Welcome. Thank you, Bharat. It's a pleasure to be back on the Hindu podcast.
1: So, you know, I'm sure you've been tracking the Chinese economy for a while now. I remember in 2021, we had a conversation with you on the digital currency and so on. And the most recent numbers that came out uh, Monday seem to have taken some people by surprise. The media reports internationally were talking about surprise um, numbers and surprise rate cut. But if we look at just the macro uh, indicators that came out, industrial output and uh, retail growth, did those numbers actually surprise you or you, do you think that has been um, you know building up for a while?
0: Not really. Uh, I think this, there was an element of surprise in the degree. It was a mismatch of degree, I would say, but definitely not uh, direction. Because as with everything in China, uh, there is a context. And uh, everyone knows the lockdown in Shanghai, which happened in April and May, was very long and painful. After that, there have been several other localized uh, lockdowns as well. So there has been plenty of disruption. Uh, The data for that particular quarter was expected in July. Uh, But as I said, uh, maybe some numbers, uh, the estimates were exceeded to some extent but again you have to take into uh, account that we are now in the last two months before the 20th congress so there might be some merit in actually experiencing pain now to justify uh, you know the political landscape which is building up before the 20th congress so if you put this all together uh, no i would say it was not really surprising
1: so you mentioned um, the you know the lockdowns and specifically local lockdowns for the benefit of our viewers uh, here back in India, lockdowns in China, I understand, are far more stringent. Uh, the rules are far more strictly applied, and uh, so on. But when you say localized lockdowns, uh, we've you know been through a few localized lockdowns. or so some states, when um, the COVID was really up during 2021 and some early parts of 2022, so the economy was sort of going on because you know in say if there's some uh, uh, rise in Maharashtra nadu followed suit maybe two or three months later. So these were the kinds of um, uh, adjustments that we were allowed to have uh, in a manner of speaking in India. But when you talk about localized lockdowns, is it similar to what we experienced maybe a year ago in India? Is it similar, similarly happening in China? Or uh, you, can you give us an idea of the how widespread it is and
0: how intense these lockdowns are? Sure, certainly. It's not identical to India, maybe not yet, but China might be headed there because as we speak uh, today, around 31 Chinese cities are under full or partial lockdowns, which means around 300 million people are impacted. Uh, Shanghai and Guangdong, the two big commercial centers, are seeing uh, new waves of COVID infections. Uh, And typically, a lockdown in China is far more stringent. Uh, People are not allowed to exit their buildings. Uh, There's a lockdown at the building level. There's a lockdown at the sort of district level. So there is it's slowly getting more widespread. And, you know, one can say that the zero COVID policy is gradually being uh, diluted. But it is nowhere as uh, widespread as what we saw at the worst uh, points of time in India but uh, who knows maybe that's the only way out for china to make it you know so uh, rampant that lockdowns become uh, very common and localized and gradually the zero covid policy is abandoned uh,
1: if we take up uh, the developments on monday uh, the data that came out is actually preceded probably by uh, an hour or a few hours by the central bank of uh, chinese central bank cutting rates So that also seemed to have taken the world by surprise because the rest of the world is uh, looking at rising interest rates, benchmark rates. Um, But we understand why, because China is probably looking at, you know, growth opportunities and probably bringing down rates and making loans cheaper. It's one way to achieve that objective. But given the inflation threat that China is facing, like the rest of the world, it has little space to maneuver, right? I mean, uh, where do you see this going over the next uh, three to six months?
0: You're right. Uh, so, uh, the party, the Communist Party of China has managed to build a very strong social narrative to support the zero COVID policy within China. So in the last couple of years, citizens and small businesses have shared the pain. So I think now it was time for the central government also to pitch in with uh, its efforts to mitigate the downside of zero COVID. So the rate cut was a major decision and it remains to be seen if the people's bank of china got its timing right because if the timing was right things should improve from here but if the timing is wrong we might see a little more pain before things actually turn around and of course uh, the, apart from rate cut uh, the central government has many other levers to use like increasing invest uh, investment in infrastructure and so on so all these uh, you know levers are being used uh, right now to limit the damage to the economy and make sure it gets back on track.
1: But the flip side to cutting rates when uh, the rest of the world is um, raising them is the interest rate differentials, right? I mean, there's a threat of flight of capital if they go down too much in China where, and other countries give them better opportunities. Uh, how do you see that influencing, you know, central bank decisions?
0: Yes, so I don't think there's too much elbow room for the central bank to do much more. So it is now I think for, you know, uh, for example, the real estate sector uh, is a very systematically important sector in China because of many reasons. It is, you know, it absorbs most of the savings from Chinese uh, citizens uh, compared to other investment channels. And also it accounts for almost uh, 20 to 30 percent of GDP by consuming raw materials, generating employment and so on. So uh, I think now, in fact, just uh, two days ago, Li Keqiang called for a meeting of uh, uh, the leaders from six important provinces, which surprisingly are export driven and asked them to play a role in uh, supporting the economy. And if you look at the developments over the last two years, it does look like a bit of a U-turn because uh, under the dual circulation policy, China is actually looking to reduce reliance on exports. But I think uh, in desperate times, it has no choice but to rely on these six uh, major provinces to prop up its GDP and make sure China passes through this difficult stage.
1: Uh, you touched, actually touched upon my next question. Uh, exports seems to have been the consolation in the latest figures. And you, you mentioned exports, even though their overall long-term wish would be to uh, see lesser dependence, reliance on exports, but in times of crisis like this, they probably lean on that uh, much, a little bit more. But if the 0 code policy, as diluted as it may seem compared with what it was earlier, and the rest of the world also going through a recession, in fact, uh, the Indian economy is also uh, looking at a sl- slowing down of exports. We had record um, numbers for the year ended, March 2022. But when the rest of the world goes through the slowdown, the first thing that hits us is um, export figures. So China is probably facing the same situation. So if the provinces increase productivity, and I'd assume that's what Mr. Chang would, you know, look to these leaders to say, okay, you know, make sure that productivity is on and supplies are, uh, you know, go on uninterrupted. But the rest of the world uh, looks at a demand slowdown that would impact China as well. So uh,
0: do you have a view on that? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think you're right. But in the end, I think it's all about what you can control and how much you can control. So uh, while the Chinese government is trying to increase domestic consumption in China and finding it extremely difficult, to some extent, one can say it can uh, manage the export situation a little better because you can have lockdowns within the uh, industrial zones and continue production by keeping the workers on site and meet whatever export demand is there and yes many countries across the world are in the recession but you know china is so dominant in exports that whatever demand is there uh, you know it can even if it can meet that level of demand uh, it would uh, somehow uh, see through this crisis so if you look at the export figures throughput at shanghai port which was one of the worst hit by covid related lockdowns reached a record high in july So I I would expect some of this to continue because uh, there is some backlog when Shanghai was uh, under lockdown, maybe production in different parts of China couldn't move out of Shanghai and now that is happening. Uh, But as I said, it is relative. Absolutely, exports are easier to control because as long as there's demand, China still retains some of its natural advantages at meeting the export demand and the Chinese government would perhaps consider postponing its goal of uh, reducing reliance on exports till the domestic economy really recovers. Excellent.
1: So, you also touched upon real estate and that was one of my later questions. So, real estate looks like there's a a government-induced or policy-induced slowdown of sorts in the real estate uh, sector because it probably wants the real estate um, mandarins to Sorry for the pun in this context, but to get their act uh, straight here. So debt has become far more stringent. It's more difficult for real estate uh, uh, barons to, you know, borrow and then build. And we've heard of the Evergrande case, uh, you know, causing ripples in the economy itself. So where does the real estate sector stand right now compared with when
0: it was started off with Evergrande being the most popular name being bandied about? Yes. So, real estate, the crisis right now is a classic opportunity of using, you know, crisis to get some reform done. So, for a long time, real estate sector in China has been called a bubble, has, you know, there's a lot of inventory of real estate which was not being sold and so on. So, this is a long pending reform. Now, uh, what happened was, I think, the credit that was being made available by the rural commercial banks – Uh, which again are a recent phenomenon in China because uh, a few years ago only the state-controlled central banks were the major players. But gradually to reform the shadow banking sector, the rural commercial banks were encouraged to lend to the real estate sector. And now because of COVID, when real estate companies which were over leveraged uh, failed to uh, keep their promises to the consumers and consumers in turn stopped making payments, I think the uh, government has seen this as an opportunity to reform the sector. But I think uh, if you see the last few days, uh, there have been, uh, you know, reports in China where uh, Chinese government is now encouraging consumers to uh, buy real estate. If you have two houses, buy a third one. If you have three houses, buy a fourth one. So there are these slogans coming out of China which suggests that while reform is desirable at the systemic level in terms of, you know, the banks should be careful to lend to real estate developers and so on. I think to boost domestic consumption, the Chinese government definitely wants people to resume buying houses. So, this is, I would uh, look at this as an adjustment and uh, some short-term pain uh, before real estate sector emerges as an engine of growth in a slightly more uh, reformed uh, manner. Okay. So, in
1: relation to India, if we look at, you know, even short-term opportunities sounding very opportunistic, I understand that we are in a highly connected world now compared with, say, 20 or 30 years ago, and there is no zero-sum game. If you and I are competing, just because, um, you know, I you go down, that, does, that doesn't automatically mean I benefit by the same quantum. But if we have to look at it opportunistically, and because two years, three years ago, we l- looked at you know, cutting our tax rates for incentivizing new manufacturing plants being set up here in India. And we were hoping to get or take advantage of the de-risking policy of global uh, multinational companies saying China plus one, let's not completely be dependent on China for the supplies, but let's also look at other countries. Maybe the Philippines and um, Vietnam sort of benefited from that far more than India has so far. Of course, I'd like your view on that, whether we have really benefited by cutting tax rates. And secondly, having come down this path and with China going through some pain, is there an opportunity for India? That's question number two, that even if it's a short-term one, can it capitalize
0: on some opportunities that come its way? Certainly. I think India definitely has a, a both short-term and a long-term opportunity here to uh, boost its own manufacturing sector. The, this window of opportunity actually opened in 2016 or 17 when the US-China trade was started. Uh, That's actually when most multinationals started looking at alternative destinations to China. But yes, the COVID pandemic accelerated that search for alternative destinations for manufacturing. And that's when you see countries like Vietnam and so on quickly capitalized on the short-term gains because they were already well-positioned location-wise. Incentives and everything were uh, sort of convenient for Chinese companies themselves to move some of their uh, last-stage production to Vietnam. So that they could export their product from Vietnam instead of from China. While India stands on the separate footing because we are, uh, you know, attracting FDI on the basis that we're a large market. But our per capita income is a little, uh, still a little too low for uh, being considered an attractive market. So we need to improve on both sides. Our per capita in- income will rise. It's inevitable. It's just a matter of time. But simultaneously, what the government is now trying to do is improve ease of business and, as you mentioned, you know tax policies and so on. So if both of these converge, I think India will be in a very good spot to gain from China's loss, so to speak. But it's not easy. The production-linked incentive schemes which were announced uh, have shown a lot of promise in electronics and mobile phones, for example, uh, where, coincidentally, Chinese companies are major players who export components to India. And if some of them can be convinced to come and invest in India, that would be a, a win for that particular sector. Similarly, there's pharma sector, where India has a huge reliance on China. So if some of the API suppliers can be convinced to come and produce in India, that will again be a win. And overall, I think uh, if India continues to perform well on exports, uh, because that's when FDI really becomes significant. If the domestic market is not compelling, you need to have a FDI, you know export story. Uh, so, there are a number of sectors where uh, things are uh, beginning to show promise. And uh, if uh, it goes well, uh, I have no doubt, uh, India will be a significant uh, beneficiary of the world looking at an alternative for China in the next, uh, in the medium term, I would say.
1: Okay. So, that's a bit surprising considering the window of opportunity uh, opened actually in 2016 with the US-China you know uh, tariff was beginning at that time. So, we're probably six years from then. And you're saying, you know, in the medium term. So you're looking at it in terms of decades, probably a 10-year and a 20-year. Is that how, you know, things actually flow? But because I thought in an interconnected world and with the size that China has, and we've had some very little exposure, like, you know, less than just below two decades ago, I was visiting a, a textile um, manufacturer supplying to Walmart here back here in Tamil Nadu, And he was, ta- he was talking about some, a couple of assembly lines he has, uh, the textile mills. And um, he says, "Okay, this is a big achievement for me. And, you know, if I go to China, the medium sized guy, not even the large sized guy would have probably 20 or 30 of these. So that's the kind of scale that, you know, China has been talking about. So given that is your uh, view, when you say medium term, and I would imagine another five years. So in a 10 year time frame, India can make a dent. Uh, Is that what we should take away?
0: Correct. Uh, But let me correct uh, that statement by saying after the U.S.-China trade was started, it was actually destinations like Mexico and Vietnam which benefited because those were low-hanging fruit. Uh, It is easy to move assembly operations to a near-shoring destination or an alternative destination. So, till uh, the pandemic hit, I think it was mostly those kind of countries which were benefiting And also uh, global supply chains, uh, you know, it differs from sector to sector, but I think it's fair to say it takes at least five to six years to actually move a portion of the supply chain, especially if you're talking about uh, real manufacturing activity, right? You need to have uh, tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers all coming, uh, converging on a location or at least uh, having uh, a favorable import tariff environment to supply to a manufacturing base and then for that base to start uh, exporting. So, yes, I think the real big opportunity is in front of us. It's in the next five years. What happened in the past maybe not uh, was not a perfect opportunity for India, but we are still at, I would say, uh, in the early stages of this opportunity and there's plenty of ground to cover. And uh, if India can capitalize as much as possible of this opportunity, I think India will uh, do well.
1: While we're on the topic of opportunities, um, you know, whatever China has been doing, it's even if it's not been impacted as much by COVID till the recent uh, uh, lockdowns began, um, as the rest of the world in the early stages of the pandemic, but in terms of its response to crisis, uh, either, um, you know, economic or, you know, far, far more um, tactical on either front, do you think India can take away a lesson or two saying, hey, this is something we could have done two years ago, anything that you spotted China was doing differently and better.
0: So uh, now we come to you know differences in political system and so on. But for the large part, I think FDI expects a predictable regime, not so much about incentives. Incentives are good. They act as a sweetener. So your production linked incentives and so on can act as a sweetener. But you can't sustain a business model of a manufacturing, you know, destination merely on the basis of incentives. So, in the long term, it has to be, you know, a predictable environment, business-friendly environment uh, with no major u-turns. And all of that, you know, we, uh, India has learnt all its lessons. And because of our, the nature of our political system, it takes time to actually capture those lessons and implement them in a better way. So, I think a lot of that, you know, uh, has been done in the new PLI scheme. And now there are at least five or six state governments which are aggressively attracting foreign investors. Uh, The central government has given a lot of flexibility uh, for the state government. So these are all the lessons because this is exactly what happened in China. It was the uh, provincial governments which were engines of growth, you know, which attracted uh, foreign investors. And the central government was very happy to step back and allow special economic zones and so on to flourish along the coastal uh, uh, regions of China. So there are lessons from China, but whether it's going to be the same in India, I don't think it will ever be the same because we have very different political systems. But there are definitely lessons to be learned. And in fact, a lot of foreign investors who have had experience in China will bring those experiences or rather expectations with them to the Indian um, market. And in their conversations with state government, they will tell them that these are some of the kind of incentives or support structures we expect. If you actually uh, expect us to scale up in India, just as we did in China, and Foxconn is a very good example. I think Foxconn has now accelerated this uh, plan to invest in India. And I'm I'm sure uh, some of the conversations are uh, about what was their experience in China and whether India can offer something similar. So, yes, there are a lot of lessons, but it's not really cut, copy, paste because we are different systems. Understood. So, if I have to go slightly on
1: a tangent before we wind down our conversation, Mr. Pai, the outsiders who probably don't understand too much of the Chinese political system or even how Chinese economy has expanded so quickly in the last three decades uh, were you know, surprised, and myself included, uh, at the kinds of decisions policy decisions that seem to have come about now. So when the world is going through a pandemic situation and probably emerging, just emerging out of it, and you're hoping that, okay, you know, let's everything, uh, you know, let let us get everything back to normal. Uh, We've seen the real estate uh, policies that come in uh, actually making it more difficult for real estate loans uh, to be granted. And then a threat of default by one of the large names that ever grant and then uh, the technology giants not having it so easy, Mr. Jack Ma of Alibaba being an example, a case in point. So if we have to zoom out and take a 30,000 foot view of the Chinese uh, politics and the economy, is it something to do with probably a far more intense desire now than, say, f- that has been for the past 20 years to return to a truly socialistic model? Because the political systems may be different, but uh, the Chinese economy seems to have become far more capitalistic. In that, you know, there are more choices by parents to have single children and then make sure that they work their most and their utmost and their best for, you know, opportunities for their child. So there are differences. in. in the, it's not an equitable distribution of wealth. You do have billionaires that are, you know, celebrated, but you also have people at the other extreme who really struggle to make it through the month and make sure that their child, mostly single children have the best that they can offer. So, in order to be able to go back to a socialistic system where the family takes far more uh, importance and uh, credence compared to uh, working for the family, do you think all of these have any links or are these just random developments not
0: necessarily linked to one another? No, I, I think there are interlinkages uh, for sure. Uh, so the Communist Party has a, a stranglehold on the politics uh, of China and I don't see that changing. But having said that, I think from time to time there is a rebalancing. We saw in 2013-14 the anti-corruption campaign which was also a, a bit to consolidate power. And now after the pandemic, the internet uh, giants Suddenly, overnight, I think they became uh, controllers of massive amounts of data because the digitization, you know, online activities were boosted by the pandemic. So uh, I think it was time to uh, for the state to rebalance this uh, control over data. And that's why we saw this uh, clampdown on the tech giants. The state, the government, uh, or the party wanted to pursue its uh, social goals. Uh, For example, uh, to slow down the average age and to encourage people to have children and so on. So these tech giants uh, became uh, targets uh, to achieve those uh, policy objectives. But overall, the private sector, I think, will still continue to flourish. There are new billionaires who will emerge uh, from other sectors. Uh, Wherever, uh, you know, the state decides to patronize or encourage uh, growth of the private sector, because the state sector alone uh, cannot uh, support the government in pursuing all of its objectives. So certainly the private sector will have a role. I don't see it completely going back to a socialist system, but the winners will be different or the identified winners uh, for the future uh will keep changing from time to time so that is definitely a recurring uh, trend we can see real estate is a good example there are some groups which have permanently gone out of business now but there will be others who will survive this uh, phase and grow stronger so i think this is a, a part of regular sort of reset or rebalancing you can call it that happens within china excellent
1: I've exhausted my list of questions. Anything else you think we could have dwelt on that would have added value and context to our conversation, sir?
0: No, this has been an interesting conversation. Uh, I hope your listeners have benefited from this. The next three months are going to be very crucial in China. Uh, We don't know the dates for the 20th Congress. It is expected to be in October or November. So before that, uh, if there's more uh, economic pain, uh, it might be to justify uh, stability on the political front. But after that, uh, early next year, maybe around the Chinese New Year, uh, you know, that is when I think politicians in China expect the Chinese economy to really stage a recovery. Because at that stage, it will look like, you know, the, the, the politics are done with. Now let's focus on the economy. So I think uh, the next three, four months will be very interesting. Sorry, uh, since you mentioned
1: uh, the next three months that are interesting, is actually counterintuitive, right? In you know, a so political system like ours in India, when there's more economic pain, then there is uh, you know further uncertainty above for, for the politicians here. You're saying you know it's a justification for the politicians saying you know what you've been through so much pain, and we are here to make sure that that is corrected. Is that how it works in China? That
0: sound, sounds very interesting the way you put it. Uh, Yes, I think, yes, there is a contradiction there, but also, you know, China values uh, this kind of uh, community-driven thinking, saying that there must be harmony. So, if you are facing headwinds uh, on the economic front, this is not the right time to rock the boat on the political front. So, therefore, uh, you know, it might be easier to make a case to quieten all the rebels down and justify a third term for uh, President Xi Jinping. So I think, yes, there is connection because uh, chaos on economic and political front is a bit too much, I think, uh, you know, from a Chinese uh, society perspective. Uh, So, yes, I I do think that uh, this can be used as a justification for, uh, you know, political stability. Uh, So, yes, I mean, that's what I believe. I I think many China watchers uh, might also agree with me.
1: Excellent. So, you know, just to set the context, this um, sometime this uh, end of this year is the conference, um, the political conference where Mr. Xi Jinping hopes to uh, continue
0: for the third term. Is that right? Yes, that's the 20th Congress. The dates will be announced about 20-30 days in advance, but it's expected to be in November sometime this year. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Pai. I really appreciate your being with us today. Thank you, Bharat.